You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. everyone. Welcome to episode number nine of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and here with me as always is Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. So Rich, would you like to tell everyone about episode eight? Sure. Previously on the podcast, we talked mostly about the Compromise of 1850. But? But we actually ended up redoing episode number eight. So if you downloaded it right after we released it last Sunday night, you might want to go back and give it another listen. What happened is that while I was listening to episode 8 while I was at work on Monday, I realized I just wasn't happy at all with how I'd presented the material as far as the writing and whatnot. So on Monday, after getting home from work, I did some rewriting, and then Tracy and I recorded the new version on Monday evening. So if you listened to episode 8 before that, we'd encourage you to go back and give the updated version a listen. And please know that Rich and I are committed to giving you the best podcast we possibly can as far as content. Right, as far as content. But when it comes to the technical aspect of recording this, well, neither of us really knows anything about that technological stuff. So our goal in that regard is just to put out episodes that pretty much don't make your ears bleed when you listen to them. But as far as content, we are committed to giving you the best podcast we possibly can. I don't think we've mentioned it before, but although podcasting is pretty obviously just a hobby for us, I do have a degree in history, and Tracy's background is in psychology, and then we both have degrees in education. So all of that's to say that we take very seriously the educational aspect of what we're doing here. We're very aware that someone may listen to the podcast and what they hear from us may quite literally be the only thing they know about the Civil War. We know that y'all are downloading the podcast from all over the world, and so someone from Ireland or Singapore or Brazil may listen, and this is a real history lesson about America's past for them, and we take that responsibility seriously. So anyway, that was a very long-winded, roundabout way to tell you that we redid episode number eight. Um, and by the way, we've also been working on a rewrite of the second episode to um, expand it and give a bigger and clearer picture of the history of slavery in America and how from the very beginning of our country's history, slavery was at the heart of the political battles that culminated in the Civil War. All right. So having said all that, we actually want to start off this episode by revisiting something that we only mentioned briefly last time, 
and that's William H. Seward's higher law speech and Southern reaction to it. You'll remember that we said that during the heated debate in Congress leading up to the Compromise of 1850, Seward and other young Northern congressmen were opposed to making any more concessions to the South over the issue of slavery. In March 1850, in a speech that infuriated Southerners, Seward maintained that the Constitution gave Congress the power to prohibit slavery in the territories. But beyond that, and even more importantly, when it came to the issue of slavery, he said, quote, There is a higher law than the Constitution. End quote. During his carefully thought out speech, Seward alluded to both Christian principles and to moral philosophy, both of which, he declared, provided solid support for the condemnation of slavery. Seward's higher law speech angered Southerners, to put it mildly. That's because Southerners would brook no condemnation of something that was not simply a system of labor to them, but was the central feature of their society and economy. But even beyond those significant considerations, Southerners believed slavery was a divinely sanctioned institution. Now, before we go any farther with this discussion, it's important to remember that there were many, many people in the North, in fact, the vast majority of Northerners in the pre-Civil War era, believed the same thing as Southerners. That is, that there was a fundamental inequality of human beings based on race. In other words, most Northerners back then, along with Southerners, were pretty much all what, by today's standards, we would consider racist. The difference, and here lies the rub, is that Southerners used their beliefs about race to justify enslaving blacks. Most Northerners, on the other hand, used their beliefs about race to, well, basically to be prejudiced against blacks. I suppose is the best way to put it. And in all our discussions, we realize we refer to the North and South as if they were both monolithic entities. And we do that for ease of discussion and because that's the way, for the most part, that things shook out when the war started, along sectional lines. But still, it's important to remember that all, the, all Northerners and all regions of the North didn't march in lockstep on every issue nor did all Southerners and all regions of the South march in lockstep on every issue. Right. So, for instance, when we talk about the South, and I made air quotes there, but since this is a podcast, you couldn't see them. Well, anyway, when we talk about the South, we don't think we're talking about a society that consisted of harmonious white people in perfect agreement with each other all the time about every issue that affected their collective, everyday Southern way of life. But when we talk about the South and slavery, that is, when we talk about the Southern slaveholding states, what we hope to communicate is that although not every white Southerner owned slaves, every white Southerner did grow up and live in a society where racial ideology was used to justify the enslavement of blacks and most people adopt the values of the society into which they are born and grow up. But that's not to say that no one in the South ever expressed reservations about slavery. Some Southerners did, but they were very, very few. And when they did express reservations about slavery, they were very much going against the flow of the mainstream of Southern society. So we hope all of that made sense. All of that was really a lead-up to an explanation of why Seward's higher law speech made Southerners so angry. A really long lead-up, admittedly, 
but we thought it was important to take the time and try and clarify those points. So, why did Southerners get so upset at Seward's attack on slavery? Well, because they went to great lengths to justify that slavery was a positive good. Positive good was John C. Calhoun's phrase, by the way. But Southerners went to great lengths in books, treatises, and sermons to justify the positive good of slavery. By the period of time we've reached on the podcast, that is around 1850, Southerners had developed an elaborate pro-slavery argument based on religion, science, history, and economics. Physicians like Dr. Josiah Knott of Mobile, Alabama, and Dr. Samuel Cartwright of New Orleans created a huge body of pseudo-scientific literature to support the notion that blacks were genetically suited to slavery. Dr. Cartwright addressed the Medical Association of Louisiana in March 1851, and his remarks are representative of the pseudoscience that Southerners used to support slavery. Cartwright's talk was on, quote, the diseases and physical peculiarities of our Negro population, end quote. He said that the differences between black and white men went deeper than skin color. According to Cartwright, every part of the Negro's body, from the tissue of his brain to the blood itself, was darker than a white man's, and a Negro's brain was 90% the size of a white's. Cartwright said a Negro's brain consisted of much less reasoning matter and instead of a much higher proportion of nerves extending throughout his body, which made the Negro essentially a sensual creature, quote, at the expense of intellectuality, end quote. He went on to say that this enhancement of the Negro's nervous system resulted in a, quote, debasement of mind, which has rendered the people of Africa unable to take care of themselves, end quote. Cartwright said this was why Africans were naturally lazy and apathetic, and why for centuries they were lost in, quote, idleness, misery, and barbarism, end quote. Dr. Cartwright declared that these mental and moral shortcomings were the reason Africans felt instinctive dependence on others. He said that even if given their liberty, Negroes lacked the virtue, integrity, and intellect to keep from sliding back into barbarism. Being a medical doctor, Cartwright was keen to point out that even the diseases of the blacks were different. The most curious of their maladies was what Cartwright chose to call drapetomania. Drapetomania. And it's just something he obviously made up. But anyway, this was the disease that made Negroes want to run away from slavery. He admitted that Western medical science had not yet recognized the existence of this disease, which I'm not going to try and pronounce again, but he said that it had long been known by its chief symptom, that is, quote, the absconding from service, end quote. Cartwright claimed that he was the first to identify this as an authentic malady and to give it a name. Cartwright said the way to treat the disease's chief symptom was with the lash, which he said some planters called, quote, whipping the devil out of them, end quote. But there was a way to prevent reaching that stage, and it was to keep Negroes warm, well-fed, and clothed, to allow them to have families, to keep them confined at night and cut off from slaves on other plantations, away from liquor, and not to overwork them. Do that, he said, and blacks were the most acquiescent beings on earth. 
But once a master had done all that, if a Negro should ever attempt to upset the balance dictated by nature, then, quote, humanity and their own good require that they should be punished until they fall into that submissive state which it was intended for them to occupy, end quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Dr. Cartwright was just one of those whose pseudoscience was accepted as true by a society that wanted to believe that blacks were an inferior race that needed to be enslaved for their own benefit. But it wasn't just scientific arguments that reinforced the significance of slavery to Southern society. Most important of all were religious arguments. Christian ministers played an important role in the Southern slaveholding states, using their Sunday sermons to endorse slavery. They noted that neither the Old nor the New Testament condemned slavery, nor did Jesus. Southern ministers used their pulpits to repeatedly cite a number of biblical passages and stories that supported slavery. For example, in the well-known Old Testament story of Job, one of his trials was the loss of his slaves, and after the testing of his good character, his redemption included getting more slaves. Then in the New Testament, there was Ephesians 6, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. In March 1852, Senator Albert Gallatin Brown of Mississippi said that slavery was, quote, a great moral, social, and political blessing, a blessing to the slave and a blessing to the master, end quote. Southern ministers reinforced this message, earnestly praising slavery for its beneficial influences on whites and blacks. 
In this line of thinking, slavery was a Christian mercy, since whites would treat slaves as if they were members of their own extended families, seeing that they were fed and clothed well, caring for them beyond the years of their productive labor, and cultivating in them a life of Christian worship. From our perspective in 21st century America, such convoluted theological rationalizing in order to defend slavery seems outrageous, but it's hard to overemphasize the importance that was attached to such pro-slavery religious arguments in the antebellum South. For example, if we fast forward a bit in our story, we find in March 1861, just a month before the war started, Confederate President Jefferson Davis said that, quote, We recognize the Negro as God and God's book and God's laws in nature tell us to recognize him, our inferior, fitted expressly for servitude. Davis went on to say, The innate stamp of inferiority is beyond the reach of change. You cannot transform the Negro into anything one-tenth as useful or as good as what slavery enables him to be. End quote. So we wanted to take this episode of the podcast and talk about why Seward's higher law speech infuriated Southerners. As you've seen, it was because Southerners would not tolerate any condemnation of an institution that was not just a system of labor to them, but was the central feature of their society and economy. But even beyond those considerations, Southerners truly believed slavery was a divinely sanctioned institution. And so for Seward to stand up in the Senate chamber and attack slavery on moral grounds really raised Southern hackles. All right. This episode was obviously the pro-slavery argument, or part of that argument. And so next time we'll use episode number 10 to talk about resistance to slavery and the rise of the abolitionist movement. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Half Slave and Half Free, The Roots of the Civil War by Bruce Levine. The back cover of this book says, Half Slave and Half Free is a succinct and persuasive treatment of the basic issues and social transformations that precipitated the Civil War. Now, in a revised edition that includes a new preface and afterword, and a revised and expanded bibliographic essay, Bruce Levine's impressive work is brought completely up to date. Its argument is still compelling, that a popular basis for the Civil War developed out of the far-reaching and divisive changes in American life that came with the incomplete revolution of 1776, changes that led to two very distinct social systems, one based on slavery, the other on free labor, which eventually made sectional differences within the framework of the Union irreconcilable. End quote. Well, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The music we use at the beginning and end of each podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water and is used by permission of Spiritwood Music. As we sign off, we want to thank all of you for listening to The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time for episode number 10. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.